Hello, I'm Alex Rutke. I'm a barrister at Thurden and Essex Chamber, specialising in mental capacity and mental health law. And in this episode of the Shednar series, I want to look at the Mental Health Act Mental Capacity Act interface, because it's one of the areas which causes the most difficulty in practice and the most room for people having very reasonable grounds for disagreement, quite often very vehement disagreement. Um, so I want to look at you really with you at some of the kind of higher level policy stuff underpinning it to try and get people to sort of see, get you to, to, to see why the two acts work in the way that they do, how they're meant to interact. And then hopefully that will give people a bit of a steer as to how that they can navigate the interface, in particular the interface in the inpatient setting uh, effectively. I will warn you two things. First, I'm afraid the law in this area is really quite complicated, so you might have to have the wet tie wrapped around your head a little bit. And second, that the law in this area is just basically unsatisfactory. It's unsatisfactory for reasons I'll develop. I'm afraid I can't do anything about the unsatisfactory nature of the law, but hopefully I can do a little bit to help you navigate the complexity of the law as it stands. So here we go. I'm going to share some slides with you. So, as I say, the dread mental capacity and mental health that interface. It's one of the areas, as I say, where people get most hung up in terms of complexity and, as I say, have the most reasonable grounds to disagree completely. People who are steeped in the mental health that people who are steeped in the mental capacity act can disagree vehemently. So, can I just rehearse, start by thinking, just place everything in its context for a second and just think about the real difference between the two acts. So the first is that the Mental Capacity Act is about someone's functional decision-making ability. Can they, at this point in time, understand, retain, use and weigh the information relevant to the decision they have to take, and can they communicate that decision? And if they can't, is that because they have an impairment or disturbance in their mind or brain? It's functional decision-making. Mental Health Act is status-based. It is does this person have a mental disorder of a nature and degree warranting the application of the mental health act in one of a number of ways? Most importantly, warranting admission for assessment or admission for treatment. MCA functional decision specific mental health act status based. Mental Capacity Act then is framed around best interests if the person doesn't have capacity to make the decision. Mental health act isn't capacity based and it's not best interest based, at least on the face of the statute. It's really risk based. The Code of Practice to the Mental Health Act, both the Code of Practice for England and the Code of Practice for Wales, tries to inject into the operation of the Mental Health Act ideas of capacity and ideas of best interest decision making. But in broad terms, for most parts of the Mental Health Act, there's some limited exceptions, ECT and also treatment in, under community treatment orders, Concept of capacity, concept of best interests don't into, into, enter into it. And also the Mental Health Act can be very clearly be specifically about risk of harm to others, whereas the ability of the Mental Capacity Act to think about risk of harm to others is much more complicated. Then the last major difference is the Mental Capacity Act is about any form of decision making, almost any form of decision making, in particular decision making in relation to care, person's care and treatment. Whereas the Mental Health Act is much more narrowly focused in on decisions about care in hospital and medical treatment for mental disorder. Put bluntly, the Mental Health Act is primarily designed to regulate coercion 
benign coercion, but regulate coercion in relation to admission and treatment for mental disorder. A very narrow, very specific task. Mental Capacity Act, much broader. So they're coming from different places. They are doing different things. But they rub up against each other in two different ways. The first is that they rub up against each other in the community. We might have someone who is subject to the Mental Health Act, but not currently detained. How does that interact with the Mental Capacity Act in the community? And then the other area, and this is the one which causes the real complexity and the real disagreements, is where someone is going into hospital, are we going to use the Mental Capacity Act? Are we going to use the Mental Health Act to authorise a deprivation of liberty to which they might be subject? So those are the two interfaces. So can I give you the policy outline? The policy outline, un outline underpinning Schedule A1 to the Mental Capacity Act, which is, I have to say, one of the worst drafted pieces of legislation I've ever seen. The underpinning policy, though, is actually relatively simple. You might not agree with it, but the underpinning policy is relatively simple. I've put up some of the complex wording there, but can I just talk it through to make it even simpler if I can? So the starting point is a person who is confined and lacks capacity to consent to that confinement and is deprived of their liberty. If you need to know more about deprivation of liberty, look at the deprivation of liberty fundamentals episode of my Shedinar series. If they're deprived of their liberty, they are eligible for doles under the Mental Capacity Act, care home or hospital, but also if they're not, if it's not doles, then they could also have an authorization from the Court of Protection. They're eligible for doles or an order from the Court of Protection under the Mental Capacity Act, unless one of three things is occurring. So the starting point is eligible for doles, unless they're detained under the Mental Health Act, in which case there's lawful authority to detain. You can't have a doles alongside the Mental Health Act detention. That's the first situation or they are not in hospital but are subject to the mental health act for instance on section 17 leave or community treatment order at which point they can be have a deprivation liberty safeguards authorization in place unless that authorization would conflict with a decision made by the mental health act decision maker so for instance the mental health act decision maker says section 17 leave requiring a person to live in a care home they'll be deprived of their liberty there, they don't have capacity to consent to that confinement. You could have, and in fact you would need, as I'll come on to, a doll's authorization relating to that care home. You couldn't have a doll's authorization relating to a, di a different care home because it would be incompatible for the with the decision taken by the Mental Health Act decision maker. So the Mental Health Act has primacy there. And then the last aspect, and this is the one which causes problems in practice, the real problems is, the person is coming in for assessment or treatment of mental disorder to hospital. They are going to be confined. They don't have capacity to consent to that confinement. Which do you use? Mental Capacity Act, Mental Health Act. And what government said and what parliament said in the Mental Health Act Amendment Act 2000 and the Mental Health Act 2007, which introduced dolls, you could use dolls unless the person is what is called an objecting mental health patient. So they're objecting either to admission or to all or part of the mental health treatment that it's proposed to give them. If they're objecting, then the policy intention, it's a relatively simple one, is, well, capacity at that point should be irrelevant. 
you couldn't be admitted uh, if you had capacity except by admission under the Mental Health Act, formal admission under the Mental Health Act. So why should it be any different if you lack capacity? So let's just break that down into a little bit more detail. So case A in Churchill A1 is the person subject to what's called the hospital treatment regime. They are detained under section under a section of the Mental Health Act in hospital. You can't use dogs. The idea being there's already lawful authority to detain the person. You don't need additional authority. Parliament wasn't thinking there about the fact that there are some people who are lawfully detained under the Mental Health Act who require an additional deprivation of their liberty to deal with an unrelated physical disorder. That's the case of Dr. A, too complex to talk about here. You can look at the detail on my website uh, and our case law database, too complex to deal with there. But the simple point is if the person's getting, is deprived of their liberty in hospital, additionally, lawfully detained under the mental health act, additional deprivation to deal with unrelated physical disorder. At that point, the only lawful authority you can have to deal with that additional deprivation of liberty as matter of stand, is the High Court exercising its inherent jurisdiction. Case B in the next couple of slides, these are people who are currently subject to the Mental Health Act but not actually detained in hospital. Section 17 leave, conditional discharge, say. There, again, you can use a deprivation liberty safeguards if not incompatible with the Mental Health Act. And as I say, there's this potentially perverse incentive to find a lack of capacity following a Supreme Court decision called MM in 2018 where the Supreme Court made clear that the Mental Health Act can't be used to give rise to bring about a situation of deprivation of liberty outside the hospital setting, with one possible exception, which is Section 17.3, which is where someone is placed under custody of someone uh, by the responsible clinician. But other than that, outside hospital, Mental Health Act draws this stark distinction between detained in hospital and free not free, not detained in hospital, and while subject to various restrictions, not deprived of their liberty. So the Supreme Court said you are not allowed to use the Mental Health Act to bring about that result. But if the person lacks capacity to consent to the arrangements giving rise to their confinement, the Court of Appeal has said in a case called SR, that you're allowed to use the mechanisms of the, court of, uh, of the Mental Capacity Act, either Dole's Care Home, or a court of protection order outside care home, for instance, supported living placement, lawfully to authorize the deprivation of that person's liberty. I have to say, it's not a very satisfactory state of affairs because you end up with a situation where a person is lawfully deprived of their liberty, but they're subject to two different regimes. Mental Health Act, deciding where the person is, deprivation of liberty regime, either doles or court of protection order, authorizing the deprivation of liberty, if the person isn't happy with this, they have to go both to the tribunal to challenge the Mental Health Act and to the Court of Protection to challenge a deprivation of liberty. It's possible to have one judge being so-called double ticketed so that they can sit part in the tribunal, part in the Court of Protection, but it's a clunky workaround. I sincerely hope that in due course, the government resolves this position. They was, it was suggested they need to think about it in the context of the independent review of the Mental Health Act, which reported a couple of years ago, and the government is still thinking about it. I've just also made reference there to guidance given in the conditional discharge context by the government, by the HMPPS, uh, for discharge conditions that amount to deprivation of talking, and they talk there quite specifically about the situations when uh, different forms of authority which might be required. 
So Section 17 leave, as I say, the Supreme Court left open the idea in uh, MM that if someone is subject to Section 17.3, in brackets, three leave, and they're put in custody of someone, that may not need, therefore, additional authorization because that might amount to a lawful deprivation of liberty. But the government's policy intention, I think, is forever has been that would only be appropriate where they're in a hospital where some of the treatment that they're receiving is to deal with medical disorder. If the Section 17 leave is either being used, for instance, being about trial period of leave in a care home or to go to a physical health hospital for unrelated physical health treatment, Section 17.3 should not be used to bring about deprivation of liberty. So if the person lacks capacity, either a doll's authorization, the hospital or the care home is required, or an order from the Court of Protection. And the case called RE-A reinforces that the person might need to be subject both to an order of the Court of Protection, in that case, think of because of the nature of the treatment in the hospital, or a doll's authorization, together with Section 17B. Community treatment order, following the same logic of MM, the Supreme Court said in PJ, conditions imposed by a responsible clinician under the uh, under community treatment order can't themselves authorize a deprivation of liberty. They can't give rise to lawful deprivation of liberty. If a person lacks capacity to consent to arrangements for them, which amount to a confinement, then that case, that a case which the judge did not give a judgment in, but he authorized reporting of the recital, the beginning bit of the order, you can find on my website made clear, you can have the CTO in place, the responsible clinician making the bare bones CTO, requiring the person to live there, and a care plan normally looked after by the local authority, but possibly the NHS if there's continuing healthcare involved, but normally going to be the local authority, bringing about the deprivation of liberty in the relevant place, and that care plan, if it amounts to the deprivation of liberty, can be authorized by the court of protection. If that's going to be in a hospital, CTO giving rise to deprivation liberty in a hospital, in a, in a care home rather, you could have a dolls in place. Similar logic, guardianship. Guardianship is not allowed to bring about deprivation liberty on in, in and of itself. If you've got someone to, subject to guardianship and it's they are deprived of their liberty, the only lawful authority you can get for the, that deprivation liberty is either dolls or an order of the court of protection where they lack capacity. That's that KD case. And then KC is the one which causes the fights, uh, bluntly. KC is a situation where the person's within the scope of the Mental Health Act. They are coming into hospital for inpatient assessment or treatment, under, for mental, potentially for mental disorder. What do we do? Well, let's just take it in stages. If they've got capacity, you can't detain them unless it's appropriate to do so under the Mental Health Act. If they lack capacity, you can use dolls if the reason that they're in hospital is to receive physical health care, not mental health care, medical treatment for mental disorder, which means you have to ask, as the GJ case asked, what's the real reason that this person is here? If, but for the need for physical health care, that you would not be thinking about admitting and potentially confining them, we are then thinking about the mental health care. If the real reason is for physical health care, you can use dolls. Can I say immediately, I recognize instinctively and uh, vehemently that this means we are dividing the world into physical health patients and mental health patients when that's just not true. Someone with schizophrenia and gangrene isn't either a mental health patient or a physical health patient, they are a human being with needs which need responding to. 
But I'm afraid the law at the moment requires you to ask, are they a physical health patient? Are they a mental health patient? If they're a physical health patient, lack capacity to consent to the confinement, it's dogs. I would say if they're objecting to the physical health treatment, that's a red flag for do I need to think about going to the court of protection for authority to carry out that treatment? That's a separate point, and I cover it in the court of protection webinar and shed in If the real reason that they're there is to be either be assessed or treated for mental health disorder, and they could be detained, they could be so-called sections, in other words, the medical recommendations could be made out, then if they don't object, there's a genuine choice, dolls or mental health act. And what you have to do at that point is think about what's the least restrictive way of bringing up about their admission. That's the AM and SLAM case. It requires a weighing of some imponderables, least restrictive. There are all sorts of things you can put into the mix on either side. The critical thing is you have to think it through. And I also recognize that objecting can be very difficult to work out. And the code of practice, both to the Mental Health Act and to, doll, and to dolls, reinforces that objecting should be taken at a relatively low bar. If the person could object, that should be enough to think that actually they are objecting. Bearing in mind this policy objective, that if someone were objecting to admission for treatment for mental disorder and they had capacity, they would have to have the Mental Health Act used. That was the policy imperative. And how do you carry that through? Well, that means you err on the side of caution under Dole on the interface. You're properly guided to err on the side of caution thinking, is this person objecting? Would they be objecting? Which one? That's a very strong point that you've got to use the Mental Health Act. Because they're, if they're going to be detained for psychiatric treatment, mental health treatment, for mental disorder, and they could be detained, in other words, you could make out the medical recommendations because they've got a nature, mental disorder of a nature and degree warranting admission, and it's appropriate to do so, and they're objecting, have to use the Mental Health Act. Just very lastly to flag, the review of the Mental Health Act, the Independent Review, reported December 18, suggesting ways forward, in particular suggesting tweaks to the interface, but also recognising that actually one of the solutions might be to think about fusion. Fusing Mental Health Act, Mental Capacity Act, but recognising that there are a number of difficulties to this and a number of competence tests which might have to be thought through in terms of working towards the potential abolition of standalone mental health legislation or making mental health legislation purely capacity based. The government is definitely committed to legislation. We don't quite know how they're going to respond in terms of the recommendation that the review made about where the interface should go but they're definitely going to introduce legislation in due course, for instance, responding to the discussion about advanced choice documents. If you need more guidance on the interface, in particular the hospital interface, Mental Health Act Code of Practice Chapter 13 for England and the equivalent in Wales gives some quite useful guidance in a flowchart. We also did a detailed guide in chambers to deprivation of liberty in the hospital setting, asking both when is the person likely to be considered to be deprived of the liberty and if they are and the mental health act might be in play how do you navigate this so this is a complex situation i'm afraid as i say it's unsatisfactory because in the hospital context it's asking us artificially to break the world into physical health patients and mental health patients but we're stuck with it and hopefully this guide will have given you, the Shednar will have given you at least some of a handle on the policy ideas so as to be able to navigate that maze a little bit more satisfactorily. Lastly, resources, our Chambers website, Man Chambers website, 3rdnessex.com, 3rd Resources and Training Mental Capacity Law, 
All the cases I've talked about there, you can find our case law summaries, you can find the deprivation liberty guide, a guide to assessment of mental capacity, uh, to, uh, to best interest, things like that. Mentalhealthlaw.co.uk, a brilliant website with all sorts of resources about both Mental Health Act and Mental Capacity Act. Sky's Mental Capacity Directory, my website, uh, mentalcapacitylawandpolicy.org.uk, lots of useful resources there and discussions of different cases. And then my Twitter handle, at Capacity Law. You're also very welcome to email me, alex.rutkeen at localnessex.com. The one thing I can't do is answer, give advice on the facts of individual cases unless I'm asked to do so by a solicitor. I'm afraid I'm just not allowed to. Always happy to point you to guidance. Always happy to point you to further resources. So thank you very much indeed for listening. And good luck navigating this minefield.